chance is that uh, most of our stories are actually pretty similar. There's not an awful lot of difference. I mean, certainly they're circumstantial and where we came from and uh, basic orientation from, you know, school or education, that kind of thing. But most of the things that uh, occur in life and the stories, there's a lot of similarities. And what I've also learned is that uh, most of the battles that we will fight, most of the battles that you will fight in your life spiritually will be battles with yourself. Now, there's no question that the enemy seeks to influence and distract and distort and dissuade us from following Jesus, no doubt about that. And my own flesh uh, fights against it and the world fights against it. But truth of the matter is when it's all said and done, there's a lot of battles that go on here between here and here, here and here, right? This 12 inches right here. <laughs> That's where a lot of the battles are. And so the similarities of our story is that the majority of us, the battles that we're fighting are the battles on the inside. So let me just ask you if you would be really transparent. You don't have to stand up. You don't have to raise your hand. You don't even have to look at me. You can bow your head and close your eyes. It doesn't matter if what you, but I want to ask you to respond to this question, at least in your heart and mind. Have you ever been in a situation where you clearly sensed that God wanted you to do something very specific you knew what it was, but you didn't do it. Good. Nobody raised their hand. Nobody blinked. Everything is good. All right. Good. We're all on safe ground. Okay, so let me go the other way. Have you ever been in a situation where there was something very specific that the Lord cautioned you about, warned you against, encouraged you not to do, and you did it? Well, chances are it's 100% unanimous on both of those questions. Those are the, I mean, that's the reality. And it may be very, very small things. It could have been highly consequential things, but it may be very, very small things. So the message for today, the focal point of the message for today is a fundamental question, and that is whose agenda is going to rule my life today? Will it be mine, my mindset, my choices, my perspective, my biases, my strongly held beliefs, whether they're right or not? Will it be my agenda that controls the vast majority of my day or will it be an, an intentional seeking of and honoring of God's agenda for my life, his priorities, his passion, his will, the work he's trying to accomplish in me and through me, which one of those two agendas is going to call the shot? So that's the fundamental question, and that's the story, because the story is the life of Jonah. So I want to invite you to turn in your Bibles, Old Testament, pretty close to the end of the Old Testament, so go to the, end, uh, go to the beginning of the New Testament and start flipping back just a little bit, and you will find the book of Jonah between Obadiah and Micah, between Obadiah and Micah. So if you see any of those names, you're close. Between Obadiah and Micah, there is Jonah. It's four chapters, it's extremely short, but I need to own to you that this is the very first time in my life that I have ever spoken apart from, as a child, the typical illustration. That what, what, is, 
What's the first thing you think of when you hear the name Jonah? The whale <laughs> or the fish. All of us as little kids or as adults, we've at least come across that. But did you know that there is so much more there than just that? That's a part of it. But it is not by any means the most significant part of it. Because the fundamental question is whose agenda is going to rule the day? And since that's common to all of us, we share the story even with Jonah. Now, let me give you just a little background. I hope you found Jonah because I want you to see it with your own eyes, not just listen to me. I want you to see it with your own eyes. And by the way, I read it again this morning, the whole book. You can read that entire book in about six minutes, okay? So, <clears throat> man alive, in 30 minutes, you could read it you know, like four times, five times. And you could get really familiar and you'll see some things that you probably have not seen before. But let me set this up for you. Somewhere between 785 B.C. and 775 B.C., Jonah is a prophet appointed by God to the nation Israel. Now, he is loyal to his people. He's faithful to his people. He's faithful to God. And you would know historically, biblically, that Israel was pretty much focused on itself, the chosen people of God. And Jonah was a moral agent. He was a moral support guiding them morally. He was a spiritual support guiding them. He was a strong, compelling voice of correction or affirmation or whatever the situation called for because he was representing God to the people as a prophet challenging them to keep their eyes on the right agenda. The story starts with Jonah in, uh, in or near Jerusalem. And then it moves to a city called Joppa, which is to the west of Jerusalem. Uh, it's a harbor town. And then it starts to move 2,500 miles further west to a city called Tarshish, 2,500 miles. Did you know that? When Jonah was gonna go to Tarshish, we'll get there, 2,500 miles. But there's a detour and he ends up back on land and then he makes about a 600-mile journey to a city called Nineveh. He's focused on his people and nearby his people in the city of Nineveh are Assyrians. And that was the race in the tribe, but they were called Ninevites because they lived in Nineveh like Tennesseans live in Tennessee. Dallasites live in Dallas. The Ninevites lived in Nineveh. And it's important for you to know that this was one of the strongest, if not the strongest cities in the known world at that point in time. Wealthy, powerful, commerce, intrigue, all the things that go along with that. And it was rapidly growing and the wealth and the power and the conquering of others near them just continued to increase. And as all of that increased, their brutality increased as well. Because there's something about power and anger that seem to go together historically. The more power, the more brutality you will see the more harshness and hardness of heart you will see. 
There's something about power that corrupts and affects and impacts the human heart. Now, here's the, here's the key thing for you to know. Jonah knew, he knew biblically, he knew spiritually, he knew experientially by observation of the Assyrians that though they were 600 miles away from Jerusalem, they were a threat to the people of God. He knew that they had the capacity to destroy, to conquer, to own all of them. He knew that. So he had a natural pushback, caution, be aware, stay clear. He had a natural orientation that way because that's who they were and that was the history. That was how they were characterized and known. But something else happened to Jonah and probably to the most of the people of his day. And the whole story of the book of Jonah is that God is about to confront Jonah with something he was not ready to hear. Have you ever had to listen to something about yourself you didn't want to hear? Have you ever had to look at something about yourself you didn't really want to see? Well, here's a consummate situation where Jonah is having to listen to something he does not want to hear and he's having to look at himself and see things he doesn't really want to see. Really important. And you know what? It's common. I've been there. I've had to hear things about me I did not want to hear. And you know, there's emotion that comes with that. And sometimes it's contrition and regret and apology. And sometimes it's anger and bitterness. And who are you? And what right do you have to say that to me? And it goes to the whole spectrum. And sometimes you receive what you didn't want to hear. And sometimes you absolutely reject it. And then when you see things about yourself, boy, that gets tough. And sometimes you lash out at others for pointing out what's inside of you when the reality is the greater battle is already happening inside your heart and mind with yourself. Is that who I really am? Where did that come from? How did I get there? What caused me to think and behave and order my life according to that kind of thinking. Is this who I've become? Now go back to the first question. The first question is, whose agenda is going to call the shot? Okay, so let's look at the book itself. We're going to move pretty quickly, uh, but I do want you to be sure to read this yourself. So chapter one, book of Jonah. The word of the Lord came to Jonah, the son of Amittai. And here's the word. Go to the great city of Nineveh and preach against it because its wickedness has come up before me. Jonah, you're my prophet. You have spent virtually the entire time you've been a prophet to my people with my people. And you've done your job. I got a new assignment for you. I want you to travel about 600 miles to the east and I want you to go to preach to the most powerful and wicked city that we know of. And I want you to tell them what's ahead for them if they don't repent. Okay? Crystal clear. If you read that first verse, I mean, there is absolutely no doubt as to what... That's a crystal clear, you can't mistake it. 
You can't say, okay, could you say that again? I'm not sure I understood what you... <laughs> it was really clear. There's the assignment. There's the directive. But look at the, set, the uh, third verse. But Jonah ran away from the Lord and headed for Tarshish. He went down to Joppa where he found a ship bound for that port, that is Tarshish. And after paying the fare, he went aboard and sailed for Tarshish to flee from the Lord. That make you want to chuckle a little bit? So exactly where is it that I'm going to run that God can't find me? Where is that place? How can I flee from his presence? How do I hide from him? But sometimes when our thinking gets a little bit distorted and we're living on our own agenda instead of his, we can actually believe that somehow we're going to escape his presence and his call and his wooing and maybe even his discipline. We can think that we're going to defer that or delay it or maybe be able to step aside it all together. Unfortunately, he's going to find out that he was wrong. Now, you know the simple story. He gets on a boat in Joppa, which is the port city. And remember, from Joppa to Tarshish is 2,500 miles on the sea, Mediterranean Sea, what we call it today. He's headed east. And so he gets on there, and as the Lord has a tendency to do, he decides, okay, it's time to uh, ramp it up here a little bit and confront Jonah with himself. And so the Lord sends a great storm. Now, remember that these, by all evidence, the sailors and the captain of the ship are all Gentiles. Well, what's the population of Nineveh? Gentiles. Where has Jonah spent his entire ministry? With the children of God, with the Jews. And the truth of the matter is he has a bias against the Gentiles. He's not particularly interested in the Gentiles. He doesn't see them in God's equation at this point. He's totally focused, myopic, about the people of God, and everybody else is just kind of a necessary nuisance. But he gets on the boat with Gentiles, and they depart. And a big storm comes up, a big storm comes up, to the extent that they all think they're about to die. Okay? All of the sailors are freaking out. They cannot control the boat. The captain, the sailors, everybody doing everything they can. They start throwing cargo overboard, trying to lighten up the ship so that they might have more control over it. And then they start figuring out, okay, this is so unprecedented, something they probably had never experienced or seen before in terms of its intensity in that, you know, they were familiar with where they were. They'd made this trip before. But this is an intensity of an all entirely different way. And so they're going like, what's going on here? And it dawns on them, okay, who, who sinned? That's where they go. Who's been really bad and somehow some God is punishing us because of one of you? <laughs> they're looking at each other going, is it you? <laughs> is it you? Is it you? What'd you do? <laughs> they're trying to find out the one. And guess where they get? They get to Jonah who, by the way, is sound asleep down in the boat. I think about that. What's going on? He is so fatigued, so stressed. He is absolutely exhausted. And he doesn't want to be in touch with reality at all because he knows somewhere deep in his heart he's running from God. Let me tell you something. There can never be peace that endures in a heart that knows it's running from God. If there's awareness 
that I'm running from God. I have just forfeited peace. I might be able to have a moment's joy or laughter or a respite from it, but I have forfeited peace and I have chosen disruption, unsettledness, dissonance in my own heart when I'm running from God because I've chosen my own agenda instead of His. So you know the story. He finally says, hey, it's me. And they say, well, what should we do with you? And he says, well, throw me overboard. I give up. I'm running from God. I, you know, why not? Just throw me overboard. Probably better for me to die anyway. And you know what these Gentiles did? These people that Jonah really didn't care about at all? They said, well, no, we're not going to do that. We're going to try to save all of us. So they have more compassion for him than he does for them. So they try and they try and they try and they figure out they can't do it. And so they pray. They pray. You don't hear Jonah's name in this prayer anywhere. You hear the sailors praying, God, whomever you are, please forgive us. This guy says he sinned against you. He's running from you. He's the cause of it. So please don't hold uh, his blood on our hands. We're chunking him over. So he goes over the side and he goes down and a big fish swallows him, and he has an interesting three days. <laughs> Probably a little smelly. Can't imagine what that was like. By the way, there's an interesting, a whole interesting study about what kind of fish that was. You say, well, you don't really believe that happened. Let, let's, let, me t- let me ask you a question here. You believe Jesus rose from the dead? If you believe Jesus rose from the dead, then you can believe a big fish swallowed Jonah. Okay? I mean, don't, let's don't get... If God can bring Jesus out of the grave, alive forevermore, then can he control a fish to teach Jonah a lesson? Yeah, and he did. So that's the rest of the first chapter. And by the way, you know that Jonah, have you ever had this moment of uh, duh clarity? Like, oh, well, Jonah has that moment inside the belly of the fish. Like, I think I've made a mistake. I think I might be better off obeying God and following his agenda. I've had a moment of illumination. And so the second chapter is his prayer from the belly of the, of the fish to the Lord, acknowledging, repenting, and agreeing to go to Nineveh. And you know that then the fish uh, plants him, expels him onto uh, the dry land, and you get to the third chapter. Look at the third chapter, verse 1. Then the word of the Lord came to Jonah a second time. Can I give you a little aside right here? If you ever find yourself out of the will of God, try to identify. I mean, don't spend days, weeks, months, because it's probably pretty obvious. Where was the point of departure? Get back there as fast as you can. What was the issue that you said no to? What was the resistance? What was the rebellion? What was the sin that you were unwilling to confront and confess 
because God is not going to give up that agenda. That's where we can fool ourselves a little bit. We think, well, no, you know, I'll get away with it and God will just, you know, sweep it under the rug and go on to the next thing. That just doesn't ever happen in my experience. The point of departure, we're going to have to return to it and get settled right there and acknowledge the disobedience. Acknowledge the willfulness. Acknowledge preferring my agenda above God's. And that's the point where I can reconnect, and that's exactly where Jonah finds himself. Then the word of the Lord came to Jonah a second time, go to Nineveh, the great city of Nineveh, and proclaim to it the message I give you. And Jonah obeyed the word of the Lord and went to Nineveh. Now, Nineveh was a very important city. A visit required three days just to get around the city. It was big. On the first day Jonah started into the city, he proclaimed, 40 more days and Nineveh will be overturned. How about that? I have, some of you have been in downtown New York and there are many other places where this happens. It's just the one that's most familiar to me. But in downtown New York, you will see people with signs or who are verbally preaching a condemnation against the city. And in their own way, they are calling people away from a reckless lifestyle and to some form of spiritual commitment. Well, when I walk past them, you know, I have got a lot of thoughts. Number one, I admire their courage. They're bold, they're right, et cetera. And sometimes you think, would I even be willing to do that? Do I have enough passion in my heart that I would do that and expose myself to it? But the reason I tell you that is that that's exactly where Jonah was. So maybe you can put the, the two together and see that's where he is. He is in a massively powerful city. Money, power, brutality, all kinds of excess. And there he's standing saying, I need you to know that 40 days from now, get this. It's over unless you repent, okay? So he says it because he is obeying God's command. Look at verse 5. The Ninevites believed God. They heard him. And there's not any indication in any of the commentaries or references that I looked at that the Ninevites had already been in some season of renewal or revival. I mean, this is boom, brick to the forehead. There's the message. Here's the consequence. What are you going to do? And on the spot, they begin to repent. Wow. Now, that's the work of God. That's the work of the Spirit of God. When Jonah obeyed and delivered the message, God took that and pierced the hearts of people and they began to respond because that's the work of the Spirit of God. When anybody's heart's convicted, it's the work of the Spirit of God that's doing it. There may be a human messenger and thank God for them, but that's the work of the Spirit of God. We're just conduits. It's the Spirit of God that convicts the heart of sin and righteousness and judgment. And that's what happens here in Nineveh. Verse 6, when the news reached the king, this gets all the way to the king really fast. 
He rose from his throne, took off his royal robes, covered himself with sackcloth, and sat down in the dust. Then he issued a proclamation in Nineveh by the decree of the king and his nobles, Do not let any man or beast, herd or flock, taste anything, nor let them eat or drink, but let man and beast be covered with sackcloth. That's a signal of humility and poverty. Let everyone call urgently on God. Let them give up their evil ways and their violence. Who knows? Maybe God may yet relent with compassion, turn, his, turn from his fierce anger so that we will not perish. That's really important, and I would encourage you to just note this one little thing here. The king of Nineveh did not play, let's make a deal with God. Did you know that? You see that? Well, he said, everybody, we got to pay attention. We're going to bow down. We're going to express our emptiness, our corruption. We're going to get honest with God. And perhaps, and perhaps if we tell the truth, if we get honest with God, perhaps he will extend mercy and withhold judgment. But he didn't make, it's like, well, Lord, we'll do this if you'll do that. No, no, let's make a deal. This is complete contrition and submission, understanding with whom we are dealing. It's not a game. It's very sober. Verse 10, when God saw what they did and how they turned from their evil ways, he had compassion and did not bring upon them the destruction that he had threatened. So don't you wish you could just close the book right there at the end of chapter 3? All is well, yeehaw, victory, good news, we win. And there's no doubt that Nineveh repented. And everybody was feeling good about things and feeling clean and whole and aware and listening, etc. Everybody except who? Jonah. Everybody except Jonah. The one person representing God, having delivered the message of God, the one person who should have been pleased and glad... Look at what the fourth chapter says there. Remember, go back and read all this for yourself. This is really, really good. Fourth chapter. But Jonah was greatly displeased and became angry. He prayed to the Lord, O oh Lord, is this not what I said when I was still at home? That's why I was so quick to flee to Tarshish. I knew. <laughs> Some of this is, Sadly laughable. I knew that you are a gracious and a compassionate God, slow to anger and abounding in love, a God who relents from sending calamity. Now, O oh Lord, take away my life, for it's better for me to die than to live. Wow. In that statement, you see a couple of things that are really... This is where I want to camp out for just a couple of minutes. It's pretty obvious that Jonah's mind and heart was so fixed against Gentiles in general and specifically against the Ninevites that he did not want them 
to be saved. He literally disdained them so much with such intensity, hatred, fear, scorn. He disdained an entire city of people so much he did not want them to even have the chance to repent. And he surely didn't want to be the messenger. Ooh, I need you to know I'm stepping on my own toes right now. That gets pretty heavy. When the prophet of God has a mindset so fixed that he doesn't want anybody except his people to be redeemed. He's more interested in being right and being judge and jury and executioner than he is in being redemptive. And if we don't understand what God's priorities and passions are, we'll get off on our own track and we'll think we're right. Because we've forgotten what God's priority. What, what are God's priorities? Did you know that God's priorities can be stated in one word, people? Which people? A particular people? This people, but not those, those people? This group, but not that group? That person, but not that person? No. God is not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. We are ambassadors for Christ. We deliver the message of God's kindness and mercy in Christ Jesus and His grace. We deliver the message to whosoever will may come. And if they come, we rejoice and celebrate and nurture and feed and grow them. But there's something very similar for all of us, or at least the possibility, as is true here with Jonah, and that his, his mind was so fixed against those people that he would not agree from his heart. Now you say, well, Rick, he preached the message. Yeah, but you know what? There's two messages here. Jonah actually had two messages. He had the message of, finally, I'll go do it because he put me in a fish. I don't want it to go there again, so I'll go tell the message. But where was his heart? What's God after in me? What's he after in you? He's not after the external behavior. Walking in this building on Sunday morning is great, wonderful. God bless you for it. I celebrate and applaud that, whatever the motive. But you know that walking in this building doesn't do anything. God's not looking for your presence in a chair. He's looking for your heart. Is your heart here to worship? Is your heart here to be open and obedient? Is your heart here to be receptive even if he shows you something about you you do not want to see? Even if he tells you something about yourself you do not want to hear? Is your heart receptive? And Jonah's actions were compliant, right? But his heart was bitter. I don't know. It might only be one. 
But the chances are in a room like this, there's somebody that's kind of right there. The actions are compliant. The heart is bitter. And that bitterness is impairing every moment of every day of your journey in Christ. And it's judgment against him or her or them or it. And you've written them off. You've cast them aside. And you won't even entertain engaging a conversation with them about redemption. You'd just as soon never see them again. I got to tell you that from my heart and for yours, that is dangerous ground. dangerous ground so let me finish verse 4 the Lord replied have you any right to be angry and then look at verse 9 but God said to Jonah do you have any right to be angry twice and this is how the story ends verse 10 but the Lord said Jonah, you've been concerned about this vine, though you didn't tend to make it or make it grow. It sprang up overnight and died overnight, but Nineveh has more than 120,000 people who cannot tell their right hand from their left hand and many cattle as well. Should I not be concerned about that great city? So go back and read that, but what does that mean? The Lord says, your heart, where is your heart? And the Lord could have said, Jonah, what's my heart? My heart's people. Why do you think I sent you to the Ninevites? Do I know who the Ninevites are? Yes, of course I know. I'm speaking anthropomorphically. The Lord said, of course I know who the Ninevites are. I know what they're capable. I know they're a potential threat. But you know what? I'm sending you because my heart is for them. And they're going to have an opportunity to repent. And you go be the messenger. But Jonah's heart was so, so far from that. And he fought against it the entire way. And so when they repented, God rejoiced. Jonah was bitter. And he said, I want to die. You made me look like a fool. I knew that's just what you were going to do. I knew you're a God who redeems, and you did it. And I can't believe it. Do you see what distortion can occur in a hard heart? Distortion occurs in a hard heart. And the question is always, will it be my personal preferences in life, in every choice, in obedience to God, in relationship to others, will it be my personal preferences or will it be God's passion and priorities? I have decisions to make kind of every day on those things. Which way? And the more I work toward my personal preferences, the harder my heart gets and the easier it is to judge and condemn and turn away. But the more it's God's passion and priorities, the softer my heart gets and the more His Spirit flows through me and I become an instrument in His hand for others. So the question is, Who's calling the shots for you? 
Whose agenda are you following? Who is waiting to hear a message? And you're the appointed messenger, but you've written them off. What's it going to take to make that change? Would you bow your heads with me for a moment? Invite the band to come back up. Am I aligned with God or am I expecting Him to align with me? Is it more important to me to be right or is it more important to me to be righteous and redemptive? Those are heavy questions. For you as a believer, it's important to revisit that now, not tomorrow. Not an hour from now. Now. Revisit that now. If you don't know the Lord Jesus as personal Lord and Savior, that's exceedingly important for you now. Just a moment. After I pray, we'll stand and sing. And there are folks here on the sides of the room that you can go and ask them to pray with you or have a conversation with them. There are cards that you can write over here on both sides of the room near the cross, and you can write down your prayer request and put it on cross as a symbol of your faith and trust and need for God. The elements are there for you to partake of the Lord's Supper from a clean heart. Whatever it is that you need to do, the time is now. God's priorities are your preferences. Father, we thank you for the word from the book of Jonah. You apply it in each of our lives differently. We just open our hearts. What is it that you're saying uniquely to me? What are you touching in my life that needs to change? Where's the hardness, the bitterness, the personal preference? We want to be useful to you and messengers in your hands. Remind us, Lord, that that requires submission to you. work among us now, we pray in Jesus' name.